starting in verse 1 of John 17. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. We do thank you, Father, for your word, which is a gift to us. Lord, your word, which is given as a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. So Lord, by it we may see you, by it we may see the way unto righteousness and avoid uh, the way of the wicked. Father, make clear to us your word today through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we saw Wednesday night, we believe and trust that the Spirit works and is connected to the Word of God to bring life, to bring growth, um, and to bring us closer to you. So Lord, we ask that you would do that through this Word this morning. And Father, this is a gospel text, as you know, because you wrote it. So Father, would you bring forth the gospel through this text so that many would come to faith in you. Lord, we love you, praise you, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, if you recall, we looked at verse 2. We learned that eternal life is a gift given by God to all whom the Father has given to Jesus. Well, in the verse we're looking at this morning, verse 3, Jesus goes on to tell us some very important things regarding eternal life. This eternal life that he's given to his people He proceeds to tell us how eternal life is attained while at the same time telling us of the substance of this eternal life. Now, in a certain sense, when we speak of eternal life, we're also speaking of salvation, right? Uh, In fact, we often interchange these two things when we're sharing the gospel with somebody uh, we love. But whenever we use these terms interchangeably, church, we need to be clear what we mean when we talk about eternal life. See, having eternal life is more than just existing forever. The eternal life Jesus gives isn't, isn't only about how long we will exist, the It's not just about the quantity of our life, it's about the quality of the life he gives for eternity. Listen to the way Gordon Ketty, one pastor, put it. He says, the mere fact that you exist does not mean that you have life, and the fact that you will always exist does not mean that you will have eternal life. Life means more than existence, and eternal life means more than eternal existence. See, the truth is, everybody will exist forever. Even Satan and his demons will always exist. The question is, where will you spend eternity and what will your existence be like? Will you have an eternal life with God's blessing forever with him or will you experience the eternal death of God's judgment? 
Now, whenever we talk about what it means to be saved or what it means to have eternal life, we usually make use of common terms that are related to different aspects of our salvation. In doing so, we we typically use certain words and phrases to describe this salvation. Words like uh, atonement, like being born again or regenerated. You've heard that said. I've, I've been justified. I'm being justified. We speak of the hope of being glorified, the importance of, of saving faith and the promise of living forever in, in heaven. This is typically the kind of language we use when telling people about salvation. And, and, and that's right, right? That's okay. It's right and correct for us to use this language when we're speaking about what it means to be saved. But I want you to notice something in light of our text this morning. In light of verse 3, I would like for us to consider some additional ways for us to uh, talk about, to speak about, to think about our salvation. We will do that by learning from the words of Jesus in verse 3. Let's look at those words again and let's say this all together since we all have it memorized, right? Verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I, I, just want, I hope you've been able to dwell on this verse as, you, as you've committed it to memory this week. It's, it's very interesting to me to note how Jesus speaks of eternal life. Because at, at first glance, we might think he's telling us how one might attain eternal life, how you get eternal life. Then upon further review, we might think instead he's describing what it means to have eternal life, that he's telling us us about what eternal life is. That's interesting. But which is it? Is he telling us how to get eternal life or is he telling us about eternal life? I I believe he's telling us both, (laughs) And that's what makes this passage, this verse, so very interesting. Jesus puts it like this. He says that eternal life is to know God. That's what he's saying in essence. Eternal life is to know God. So he touches on both of those questions, doesn't it? By saying eternal life is to know God, Jesus teaches us, first of all, that eternal life is a by knowing God and secondly he teaches us that the essence of eternal life itself is knowing God therefore eternal life is obtained by knowing God and the essence of eternal life is knowing God let me ask you something though do you ever even think about talking about eternal life in this way What I mean is, do you ever even speak about eternal life strictly in terms of knowing God? If I were to take a guess, I would say most of us aren't used to speaking or thinking about eternal life and salvation in the ways I I mentioned. In fact, we're used to speaking about them in the ways I mentioned previously when we talk about regeneration or I've been saved or I've been born again or I've been justified, but we rarely speak of having eternal life as I know God. But that's what Jesus says eternal life is, doesn't he? I hope in this case that we could learn a good bit from the way Jesus refers to eternal life in this passage. So Jesus then tells us 
That eternal life is to know God. We obtain it and experience it by knowing God. Well, what kind of knowledge are we talking about here? That's what we'll spend the rest of the sermon kind of looking at here. What does it mean to know God? Right, a lot of people will tell you they know God. In fact, the great majority of the people in this world profess to believe in a God or another. So based on that, it, it's safe to assume then that everybody has eternal life because almost everybody believes in a God, right? Is mere belief in a God all that's required to have eternal life? Well, to answer that question, we need to take consideration of what Jesus says here in verse 3. You'll notice Jesus doesn't say that eternal life is simply knowing any God, does he? He doesn't say that. He says eternal life is to know the only true God. Eternal life is to know the only true God. Jesus is making a distinction, isn't he? By his statement, he's excluding all other gods in the world. That's the first thing we see here in this text that he is saying there is only one true God and that this true God is the one we need to know if we hope to experience eternal life. By the statement, Jesus excludes all other religions. There is but one true and living God. There are many false gods in this world, many religions that look like true religion, but are not. And you know, it's, it's quite interesting to note, by the way, how the cults have learned to talk the talk in an attempt to sound like more orthodox Christian faith. Have you noticed that? Have you ever encountered a, a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness when you talk to them? It's sometimes it, it's really difficult to know what makes them different from mature religion. Because what they've done is they've, they've used, they've learned to use our language and they regularly affirm orthodox truths that the Christian faith is held to. But the thing is, when they affirm these truths, they're not affirming them in the same way as you and I do. That's the difference. Just as Satan can appear as an angel of light, they use all the right language, but they use a different dictionary. And this is always, always dangerous. It's why when we talk about these things, we want to make sure that we're defining our terms to the best of our ability according to the written final and inerrant word of God. Folks, beware when people from these religions attempt to persuade you, saying to you that the difference between our two faiths is just little consequence. You ever hear that? We're really not that different from what you and I believe. The difference between our faiths isn't that big of a deal. On the contrary, the consequences are eternal. We're talking about the difference between eternal life and death. It doesn't get any more serious than that for you and I. By the way, I've always wondered this. When, they, when I encounter these people, um, there's, if there's so little difference between you and I, then why don't you just cross over to our faith, right? That's, it's fine. If there's, I have an eternal life and death consequence on this side. If you don't, if it's not that big a deal to you, then well, come on to faith. Reject that false doctrine and come to the light of the gospel of Christ. So anyway, eternal life requires knowing the one true God as he is revealed in his word. 
God's word alone is the final rule of all things pertaining to life and faith. Here's the point we're tra- we need to understand. If we don't know and worship the one true God, then by the Bible's definition of terms, we're idolaters. It's, it's only by coming to know the true God that we can find forgiveness for our, our idolatry to then be brought to a place where we can worship the true and living God. Paul makes a mention of how we've been called out of idolatry to worship the true living God in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where he says, For they themselves report about us and what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Eternal life, knowing God, involves knowing the only true God. And now knowing God includes the notion of knowing about God. If you know God, you have to know something about God, certainly. But that said, knowing God means more than having an intellectual knowledge about him. It includes having an intellectual knowledge about him, but it must be more. Knowing God, secondly, includes having a personal knowledge of him. A personal knowledge of him. Again, this is simply more than just an acknowledgement of an existence, right? That's not exactly what we're talking about. It, it means to know him personally. This is more than an affirmation of brute facts about God. It's more than an intellectual knowledge. This is knowledge that must include relational knowledge. It's a knowledge not only of the head, but also of the heart. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, a familiar passage to many of us, it says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And as I thought about this verse this week, what, what do you think it means to in all your ways acknowledge him? It means to know him. We are to acknowledge him, to know him as we walk with him. He's the one we're looking to. We're not trusting in ourselves here. We're supposed to be looking at him and saying, Lord, how am I supposed to understand these things? How am I supposed to to look at the world around me or at this particular situation in front of me? I want to ask this question. We look at God relationally in this way. We need to. In Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, God says this. I love this text. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. It's one of those, write the reference down so you can study it later. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. See, knowing the Lord is something we can actually boast about. It's something to be greatly encouraged about. It's a great privilege. Knowing God means we must know him personally. We must have a personal relationship with him. And when you think about it, what does it really mean to know somebody? We live in this weird culture where we're... Because we're connected to social media, we have a certain number of what we call friends, right? And we get to list that number of friends. Many of us know some people who are quick to say that they know a lot of people, but when you look closely, you begin to say that these people are only acquaintances at best. 
to really know somebody, you need to know more than just a few facts about them. You need to know them personally to experience an actual relationship with them, right? Anybody can gain knowledge about God. Anybody can pick up the Bible and learn something about God. They can even open his word and read things about God without ever truly knowing him personally. There are even some who think they're within Christ's church because they know a lot about him. They've read the book, they've read all the theology books, but they still really don't know God. And perhaps this describes you this morning. Perhaps you've, you've read about God's work of creation, but do you know the one who created all things personally? You may have read that God is the healer and deliverer of his people, but have you ever experienced his healing and deliverance personally? Yes, he's the one who is called light into being, but has he shown the light of the gospel in your heart personally? Has he revealed the face of Christ to you personally in his gospel message? Church family, it, it won't do to simply know a lot of neat things about our Lord. We are to know him personally if we are truly to know him i i had um, my my best friend uh brother richie allen's son kyle who i've known since i was about 13 um he actually sent me a text this week and he asked me if i how i knew this this guy who i'm friends with on facebook and this particular guy i won't use his name um i knew when i was seven years old for one year we were friends at church because we had the same birthday. And so I, I was connected to him this way. And so I'm like, okay, that's what a small world, man. Okay, how do you know this guy then? And he said, well, I don't really. Uh, he led an interview of a job that I ended up not taking. And I, I thought about this, in this text, what we're studying this week. Why are we friends with this person, right? I, I, we can, this person can know a lot about us by looking at all the pictures of our families and knowing maybe where we live, where we serve. And, but we don't know him personally. It's probably the type of person I would see in the grocery store and be like, I think that's that guy, but I'm not really sure. So I'm not going to make a fool out of myself, all right? But we do this in our culture, and, and listen, the, the scary thing is, is that some of us think we know God, but we only know him in this way. We know about him, we know what he's supposed to be like, but we do not call him by name. We do not see him and have a relationship with him and talk with him. Maybe we've even thought we had a personal relationship once back when we were seven years old, but we do not today. It's a dead relationship. That's a scary thought. This is why this text has so much gravity to it, right? Because it is defining your salvation in simple terms. Do you know God? Do you know him personally? Now, as we move along, we need to note another important point about knowing God. If we are to have any hope of really knowing him personally, then we must also know him who he sent. That is to say, if we are to truly know God, then we must know him in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel itself, isn't it? He has come to make him known. Now, this verse we're considering this morning, it's very unique. I don't know if you've, you've ever thought about this or you realize this. This is the only instance in the entire word of God where Jesus Christ refers to Jesus Christ. 
The only part of scripture where he refers to himself as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one talking in verse 3, right? This is his word. If you have the, the, the red letter Bible, which we talked about, really the whole thing should be red letter. But if you have the red letter Bible, it means Jesus said this. So let's think about this. What, what does Jesus Christ mean? Well, we know Jesus means God saves. Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah, the mediator between God and man. By referring to himself in his full title here in this passage, Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms that he alone is the one and only promised Savior. Now, it is, it is no mere coincidence that Jesus Christ refers to himself in this manner here in this particular passage when he's praying about the necessity of truly knowing God. Jesus is making it very clear there is only one way to know God, to know him by the only mediator between God and man. Now, now some people will be offended by the exclusivity of our faith. They'll take offense to that. They'll take offense to Jesus saying he's the only true way to know God, but there is nothing we can do about it. I, I, I can't do anything about it. I didn't make this up. It's, it's not anything we've said. This is what God himself has said in his word. And in fact, left to ourselves, it would not be something we would think up or make up, would it? According to our sinful nature, we would go in the complete opposite direction, wouldn't we? But to know God, we must know him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. J.C. Ryle put it like this. He says, the mere knowledge of God is not sufficient and saves none. We must know the Son as well as the Father. God known without Christ is a being whom we can only fear and dare not approach. In fact, to know God apart from his Son is really to not know God at all. In order to really know the God of the Scriptures, you've got to know him according to the Scriptures. And if you really know him according to the Scriptures, then you'll know him as he's chosen to reveal himself in the Scriptures through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we turn to the scriptures, this is what we read about our Savior. Brother Danny read from us in Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us. How? In his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. We're told in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, that in Christ Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We're told in John 1.18, a text we've been turning to quite often, that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus is the one who reveals, who explains, who exposits, who exegetes God to us. If we are truly to know God, then we must know him as he's revealed himself. It is not for us to pick what portions of his revelation we accept or reject. We must accept it all. You see, this knowledge of God, it's tied to knowing Jesus. Without this knowledge, we will be destroyed. We will perish So do you know God and you know him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Fourthly, the knowledge of God that we are to have, it's also to be a growing knowledge. We talked about this in Sunday school. In other words, it's not as though once you come to truly know God, that's all you need to know. Okay, I know him. 
I truly know him, and so I'm, I'm good. No, that, that's not the way it works. Eternal life is having this knowledge of God and growing in that knowledge forever. There is not a time when we will come to the point of exhausting the knowledge of God. The scriptures tell us that we will forever be learning of the riches of his grace as it, uh, in the ages to come. And the wonderful thing is, church family, is that we don't have to wait until we get to heaven to begin growing in our knowledge of God and eternal life. We can do it now. We begin to grow now. One pastor put it like this. He said, this knowledge is increasing. It begins here and continues forever. Knowledge here is like elementary school compared to heaven. You really are learning. And when we finally get there, we will know, even as we are known, Paul says in, Ephesians, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have always been fully known. So this knowledge of God is something that's growing. This knowledge of God is also something that's satisfying. There's lots that we can learn in this world that oftentimes proves frustrating and disappointing. For instance, uh, we went to the fair Friday night, right? No, Thursday night. Uh, we went to the fair Thursday night with all of the Page family and multiple other guests and um, way too many people to go to the fair with, uh, too many kids. Uh, and there came a point in time where I didn't eat dinner uh, because I was going to be hungry for some awful food at the fair, right? That's why you go to the fair so that eventually you'll get nauseous uh, and regret life decisions, right? That's not, uh, I thought that's why. Um, so I went to the fair and there's only one thing I want to, there's two things I want to eat at the fair. There's a funnel cake, obviously, but the, my dinner for the night is going to be the world's largest corn dog. Um, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they keep it on the stick. It it's, it's defies physics, all right? So it's magical. Um, and so I went off on a quest uh, abandoned my family and went off on a quest uh, to find a foot-long corn dog. And so we got uh, to the first uh, concession stand there, and the lady said, "We've discontinued those. We don't sell the foot-long corn dogs." And my brother had to catch me as I fell into his arms uh, uh, as the grief was overwhelming. And so I went to all the vendors. Right, the vendors up front. Surely somebody has the world's largest corn dog that I can consume. And from vendor to vendor. I saw average corn dogs, I saw hand-dipped corn dogs, I saw family corn dogs, but they weren't giant corn dogs. Um, and so uh, I continued in my desperation to find one, and I did not. And so I settled for a hot dog and corn nuggets and tried to eat them together. Um, it did not work, it was not nearly as satisfying, and I said, this has been the most disappointing day of my entire life. Um, and so, uh, needless to say, I, I uh, reconvene with the family and my dad is chewing something. And I said, well, what'd you find to eat? And he said, I, I found a giant corn dog and I consumed it. And uh, I considered running away at that uh, point in time. Um, but it just goes to show that this world is not satisfying to us in any way, shape, or form. There's always going to be something we learn that will be frustrating and disappointing. How many times have you learned something only to realize that it was useless or outdated knowledge, right? Uh, you have that one guy in your group that always comes up with useless facts just to say those useless facts. And you respond to him, well, thank you but that was a useless fact, right? How often have you learned something only to be disheartened by what you've learned? Well, uh, I'm going to encourage you this morning that knowledge of God isn't anything like that. 
Knowledge of God is a knowledge that always satisfies. It is a knowledge that never disappoints you. It's a knowledge that every time will encourage you. It satisfies you down to the very depths of your soul. It's a satisfying of not only the mind, not only the intellect, but also of the heart and the soul. It satisfies in a completely indescribable way. The knowledge of God is satisfying. But this knowledge of God also, next, is practical. I want you to see this. This is vital. The knowledge of God is practical. There are many in the world who know a great many things, but who know those things with no practicality. There are some in the church who know a lot, but they're not able to apply what they know in practical ways. When we grow in our knowledge of God, it ought to lead us to action. It does, in fact, lead us to action. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand. There is then no such thing as useless information when it comes to knowing God. What we know and what we learn about God will either lead to worship, it's either going to bear the fruit of worship, dropping us to our knees to praise our God, or it will result in some other fruitful application in our lives. One way or another, knowledge of God is going to bear some fruit. You know, there are some in Christ's church who saddenly are content to continually learn about God and they do little to nothing with it. It's heartbreaking and it isn't right. In fact, some of these very same students of the scripture are so quick to criticize those who are busy trying to apply what they're learning. While God's people are at least attempting to apply God's word, they're sitting in their chairs criticizing them as they do it. Now, listen, some may be in error. They may need correction administered in the way that certain people do things, but at least they're out there trying to apply God's word. At least they are, by God's grace, seeking to do something with information they've been given. Our knowledge of God isn't something that's supposed to be purely theoretical. Knowing God isn't only knowing about what we are to think, but it involves learning what we are to do as well. So reflect on this. Does your knowledge of God lead to practicality, lead to practice, or is it just building up your mind? We're going to conclude with this final point this morning. Knowing God, or the knowledge of God, is also a transforming knowledge. Knowing God is transformational. To know God is to be transformed. Indeed, knowing God results in eternal life, but it also causes eternal life. See the difference? Knowing God results in a transformed life. God is sanctifying his people with the goal that we will one day be fit for heaven. So, If we truly know him, then we're being transformed. We have been transformed in that we were once dead, but now we have life and all things have become new. We've become new creatures in Christ Jesus. That is transformation. We're being transformed by the work of the Spirit as he brings about sanctification in the lives of his people. 
Again, to refer to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We're being transformed by this knowledge. You know, there are people who we meet in this life that have a good impact on us in meeting them, and some have an ill impact on us for meeting them. Some people that we meet that are delightful and and encouraging and and being around them has a a good effect on us. And we even tell him, I'm so glad I met you, right? And there are others whom we meet that we, let's be frank, have wished that we've never met at all. Because knowing them has only hurt us. It's only caused us to take step backwards. It's only had a terrible influence in our lives. Well, here's something that's encouraging here. Knowing God will only have a good effect on us always have a good influence on us. It will lead to growth and godliness. But this, of course, also means that those who claim to know Jesus but live nothing like him have no basis to claim that they know him at all. And that's my charge to you this morning, church. If you say that you know God, but you know you know there's nothing in your life that reflects that because there's been no transformation. Friends, you can't know God and not be changed. You cannot truly know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent, who knowledge is transformational, it's satisfying, it's practical, and never be changed. So, so that's the question. Have you been changed by knowing God? Have you known him in a personal way and by that your life has now been changed? Where you see yourself pursuing righteousness, pursuing Christ, pursuing godliness in ways that you know is not natural to your sinful being. If so, then you have cause for encouragement. Because Jesus says that that's eternal life. (laughs) But friends, if, if you don't, if your life does not mirror Jesus in any way, then you have no right or basis to claim that you know him at all. If you know him, there ought to be some evidence of the fact that you've been transformed by him. Of course, not that we will obtain perfection in this life, but friends, look, even, even the smallest amount of progress in our lives is evidence of his gracious hand at work in us. That is wonderful. Knowing God is a knowledge making wise unto salvation, which is eternal life itself. I want to conclude with this reference from 1 John 3, 2. And I'll give you a charge and we'll pray. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. I hope that you can say that. I hope that you can rest assured that no, that when you see Christ face to face, you'll know him. You'll see him as he is in that full state of glorification. You be transformed to know him. Friends, if you don't know God this morning, then I pray that you hear the gospel, that you'd hear that God sent his only son Jesus to die on behalf of sinners. And that in that, he's given a gift of eternal life to all those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ. 
You deserve to be on that cross. You deserve to bear the full and final wrath of God for your sins. But Christ being a merciful Christ, being a gracious Christ and a a wonderful God has taken your place. He has bore that wrath for you. And he has given you his status as righteous, as acceptable in the sight of the Father so you can have a relationship with him. And you can truly know God. And that knowledge leads to eternal life. I pray that every one of you would have full confidence to be able to say today, I have eternal life because I know God this morning. That's my prayer for you. Let's stand and you can join your hearts with me together in prayer. Father, we've considered wonderful things from your word this morning. Lord, you've been kind to Give us a simple definition for having eternal life. It is to know you, Father. And we know that the only way we know you is to know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Lord, is this pastor's heart, it's his desire, as well as it is your desire that every one of these human beings in here would not perish but have eternal life. So Father, I'm trusting you to do what only you can do. Lord, you'd work in the hearts of those here this morning that don't know you or maybe just had a knowledge about you, but certainly not a life-changing, transforming knowledge. And Lord, you would give them that and they would see the beauty of, of Christ, the glory of Christ that would shine on their faces in light. And you would be with them. They would be assured of that relationship for all their days. Lord, I'm trusting you to work in our hearts as well for those of us, Lord, who do know you, but who are wrestling with sin and wrestling with not walking with you, not being a mirror of you and your works, Lord, that you would um, cause us to repent and to grow in the likeness of Christ. You are worthy, God. You are so worthy. And you are trustworthy to work. Father, we acknowledge that we trust you to work through the preaching of your word. We lay all this at your feet, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.